Our message for this year for Yom Kippur comes from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 25. Now, Ezekiel was writing at the time when he was living in Babylon, or taken captive in Babylon, and it was at the time when Babylon was attacking Israel and Jerusalem, and I believe this chapter takes place just after Jerusalem is destroyed. Starting in verse 1, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, set your face against the Ammonites, and prophesy against them, and say to them, Hear the word of the Lord God, thus says the Lord God. Now it's interesting, he's been prophesying for many, many chapters, as well as Jeremiah, uh, to Israel, and, or to Judah, and to the Jewish people, and to Jerusalem. And now here, he is speaking to, God is speaking through Ezekiel, uh, for the next several chapters, to the Ammonites and other countries around Israel which is very interesting. Jeremiah does the same thing. So God's love and God's mercy and his appeal to those other nations was there just as much as it was to Israel. And of course, the only reason that God gives a message to these countries is so that they be forewarned of the coming calamities so that they have time to repent and avert those coming calamities, right? Like he did with with Nineveh when he sent Jonah there. And so while it's, it's not God just saying, well, I know ahead of time and I'm going to, you know, I'm just wanting you to feel the pain ahead of time so that you're anxious, waiting for the shoe to drop and knowing it's going to come and you can't get away. You know, he's not there to torture us or torture these other nations that he's telling them ahead of time, I'm coming to get you. No, he's telling them a warning that you're because of your lives, because of your lifestyles, this is what's going to happen. But of course, with that is always... The, the message that there is still time to repent. You have the, like the concept of the Rosh Hashanah, 10 days of awe, and Yom Kippur. He's giving us time right now to be aware of what's happening so that we have time to, to turn to him and repent. So the message to the Ammonites. Because you said, aha, against my sanctuary when it was profaned, and against Israel when it was desolate, and against Judah when they went into captivity, I will deliver you as a possession to the men of the east, and they shall make their dwellings among you. They shall eat your fruit and milk. So because you were laughing at Israel and Jerusalem when Babylon came in and destroyed the place, I'm going to bring this upon you as well. The Lord God says, Since you clapped your hands, stomped your feet, and rejoiced in heart with all your disdain for Israel... I will stretch out my hand against you and give you as a plunder to the nations. I will cut you off from the peoples and I will cause you to perish from the countries. I will destroy you. So pretty heavy words. And it shows, even though Israel, Judah, was, was sinning against the Lord and God made that plain through Ezekiel, through Jeremiah, and through other means of showing that, uh, that we were not following him and that destruction was coming as a result of our sins, and even though we were in disfavor, in a sense, with God at that point, he did not approve of other people mocking us for what had taken place and happened to us. And in the same light, still today, God does not appreciate when his people are put down, even sometimes when we deserve it, even sometimes when we make mistakes, even sometimes when, when, when criticism is due. It doesn't make it valid to denounce and put down and, 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 and 
dragging the streets God's people. And likewise, the same for us, we should not rejoice in calamities and troubles that come upon those who are different from us, those who are, for whatever reason, opposed to us. Right? Just, so, just because the Ammonites were opposed to Israel did not give them a right to laugh at and rejoice in their troubles. And the same, we should not rejoice just because someone else is going through troubles. No matter what they caused to us, no matter what damage they caused to us, no matter what harm they did to us, it does not give us a right to laugh and ridicule, put down, and be glad that they're suffering. So it might be a, you know, an ex-friend or an ex-spouse or, or someone who, who hurt us, uh, maybe a past job, and, and so then you know, we, we were fired from there, and then we hear that they start going down, and they're going out of business, and well, they deserve it, they're getting what they, you know, and that serves them right. That's not a godly attitude. Right? And that's what it really comes down to, is God wants us to have his heart. And God does not rejoice in our sufferings. He doesn't want any to perish. He doesn't rejoice when anyone suffers, even if the suffering is brought about by our wrong choices, and that he allows it, as we read when we did the book of Lamentations, he does not willingly grieve the children of men. It's not his desire, it's not his will for us to be grieved. It's not his desire for us to, to suffer. Now, it doesn't mean he doesn't allow suffering. Right? He's very balanced with that. Because we can take it to the other extreme. Well, since God doesn't want anyone to suffer, so then God loves everyone, God's going to let everyone to heaven. No, he's not going to let everyone to heaven. And well, if I have God's heart and I don't want anyone to suffer because God doesn't want anyone to suffer, so I should do everything I can to stop any suffering that's going on in the world. And that's not what he calls us to do either. There are some people who need to be put in jail. Right? There are some people who need to pay the consequences of their actions. And we don't need to bail everyone out all the time. Right? Sometimes our, we think we're doing God's heart and doing God's bidding by not helping someone learn a lesson. Right? We don't have to bail out our kids time and time again for all their wrong choices. And they'll never learn. We don't have to give them all the answers to the test so they'll pass the test. Right? We don't have to spare them from working hard, getting some calluses on their hands. We're really not helping them. We're helping one another and bailing people out all the time. And God doesn't, and there will be a judgment day. That's what Yom Kippur is about. But with his judgment is mixed his mercy, and even when judgment comes down, whether on Lucifer or the angels or anyone, he still suffers with them. He's not desiring to do it. The Bible calls the destruction of the wicked his strange act. It's out of character for him, but he will still do it in mercy to them and to all others. Just as we would do if we had a loving pet that we raised and it came down with rabies. We would do the just thing for the animal and for all those that it could infect. And so God in his mercy, he will judge, but while he's doing it, he's not rejoicing. And if we truly have God's heart, we will not rejoice in the suffering of others, no matter who they are and no matter what they've done to us. And no one has done anything worse to us 
than what they've already done to God and what we've already done to God. And if God can still love us and love them, even in all that we've done to him, and sorrow when they sorrow, and sorrow even at their punishment and even their eternal punishment, their destruction, they will be destroyed, if that can break God's, God's heart, when we have God's heart, it will break our heart as well. Right? And so he pronounces judgment on the Ammonites because they were rejoicing in what happened to Israel. And so he says, you judge them thus, thus I am going to judge you with what judgment you had on them. You wanted their destruction, you rejoiced in their destruction, you're going to receive their destruction. What you pronounced upon them, that's what's going to happen to you. The Lord God says, because Moab says, look, the house of Judah is like all the nations. Therefore, behold, I will clear the territory of Moab of cities. So the Ammonites rejoiced in our destruction, and the Moabites saying, oh, now they're just like us. They're no better than us. They've been brought down to our level. And so this cutting down, this cutting under, this, this undercutting of others. God had called Israel for a special purpose, as his chosen nation. Didn't make us any better than anyone else, but for a specific purpose. And that specific purpose was to tell other people about him, so that they can join on board and also have that special purpose, that special choosing, to tell other people as well. Right? That's how it works. One light lights another match, and the match lights another match, and the light keeps on going. And each one then comes aflame. It's not to stand by ourselves and say, oh, look how bright we are. But it was to touch others and set them on fire for the Lord as well. And so to say, oh, no, see, we're sinners, and now they're sinners too. Look, at they made a mistake just like us. They did just as bad as we did. They're no better than, than we are. As if that helps us feel better about ourselves. Right? Instead of us coming up to God's standard and living according to his word and following those who are following God, Instead, we rejoice when they fall too, so that they come down to our level instead of us coming up to God's level. That's what the Moabites were doing. And we do the same thing. Gossip, criticize, backbite, cut people down, point out their faults to others in order to bring them down. And somehow we think we're bringing ourselves up. Justifying our wrong actions because someone else did a similar thing. Or whatever in our word, word, mind we thought was worse. And so that we don't feel so bad about our sins. Oh yeah, I've got this wrong habit, but at least I'm not as bad as so and so. They're doing this. To that. And so we appease our guilt instead of surrendering it to the Lord. And when God brings to our mind and convicts us that we have, again, criticized others, cut people down, defamed their character, hurt their reputation, or rejoiced in their suffering, rejoiced in their downfall, rejoiced in their calamity, the thing that God calls us to do is to then, when, he, when he convicts us of that and we realize that, 
is to then confess it to God. And receive his forgiveness. And accept the Messiah's punishment in place of our punishment. And allow his sacrifice to be what removes the sin out of our hearts and minds. And then for him to replace that tendency with his heart, with his mind, with his character. Right? So it's not just, well, I just got to change my thinking. And so, okay, this, this company or this person who was horrible to me, and now something horrible is happening to them, so I'm going to be happy. It doesn't just, it doesn't just happen. You can't just make yourself happy or unhappy because of someone else's suffering. But God can do that. God can change us. God can transform our thinking. And that only happens by God taking out our heart, our mind, our character, and him putting his mind, his heart, his character into us. And then he changes us from the inside out. So the heart changes, and then the thoughts change. And then the actions change in that order. It's not changing the actions on the outside, because we can say, oh, yeah, I'm so sorry to hear about that calamity that happened to you. But inside, we're, oh, yeah, great. <laughs> you deserve that. I warned you, and I told you so. And God will look at the heart. And he's the one who can change the heart. And he's the only one, through confession, through repentance, through his sacrifice, through his Holy Spirit changing us. To the men of the east, I will give it as a possession together with the Ammonites, that the Ammonites may not be remembered among the nations. I will execute judgments upon Moab, and they shall know that I am the Lord. And so this is just as Ezekiel prophesied, so it happened. After Babylon was done with Israel, it started attacking the other nations around it. And they began to suffer their wrath as well. But again, God's purpose, so that they might know that I am the Lord God. That's his purpose. Purpose is not in judging. His purpose is not in destroying. His purpose is that so people will learn from their mistakes. And hopefully even from the mistakes of others so that we don't have to go through it ourselves. And that we might know that he is the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God, because of what Edom did against the house of Judah by taking vengeance and has greatly offended by avenging itself on them, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will also stretch out my hand against Edom, cut off man and beast from it, and make it desolate. So now he's moved over to the Edomites. They take vengeance. So they join forces with Babylon in warring against Judah. Taking vengeance for some thing that they felt they had been wronged and wanting to avenge themselves and take vengeance upon Israel. And sometimes we can feel justified in our minds on bringing vengeance upon someone. Someone hurt us and we think we have a right to hurt them. And we excuse our, our, uh, our actions. Right? So it's gone from thoughts and rejoicing into words, cutting down, to now actions in taking vengeance and bringing pain upon someone else. And we justify it because they brought pain upon us. Well, doesn't the Bible say an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth? 
Well, there is justice and there should be justice and judgment, and that is equality and judgment. Right? It doesn't say two eyes for an eye. It doesn't say a neck for an eye. So just an eye for an eye. That's it. Equal justice. Right? But vengeance always wants to enact more upon the perceived per per perpetrator than was done to us. We want to get back. We don't want to get even. We want to get worse upon the other. Right? And so vengeance is, is not good. Uh, and God judges for vengeance as well. We take vengeance. The Bible tells us that vengeance is the Lord. The Lord will bring vengeance. And again, that doesn't mean we don't have to bring justice. If someone wrongs us, we can call the police. Right? We can have them put into jail or you know, have them sued or whatever to bring justice here on this earth or bring it before the congregation and let the congregation decide and, and, and let the decision be made and abide by the decision. So it's okay to bring justice, to bring harmony, to bring out wrong, and to right wrongs, but that's different than vengeance. A lot has to do with the motives. Is there anger? Is there bitterness? Is there that desire to bring down, cut down, and hurt, and be happy that they're now punished and suffering? See, true justice is sad for the person when they're going through it. It's sad that they committed that act. I remember a friend of mine, he was older, um, and uh, he was traveling through New York City and on the subway, and, and him and another friend of mine, actually our guest speaker, Alan Reinock, is going to be here in a few weeks, um, was with this man, uh, Dr. Gardner, and they got mugged, and uh, Dr. Gardner, again, an older man, was pushed down on the ground and kicked, and, and, uh, and they ripped his pocket and took his wallet, and, um, and so when he was sharing the story afterwards, telling us the story, he said, I am so thankful that I was not them. So thankful that I wasn't the one who beat someone up and stole from them. I'm so thankful that I'm not carrying around the guilt of that action. I feel sorry for them. I feel sorry that they had felt so low in their lives that they need to do that to, to an older person. And that's the attitude, that's the character of God, right? The sorrow for them, sorrow for the injustice, the sorrow for, for the state of being they are. Not rejoicing, not taking vengeance, but still okay to bring justice and bring them to court again in that type of situation. Thus says the Lord God, because the Philistines dealt vengefully and took vengeance with a spiteful heart, to destroy because of an old hatred. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, I will stretch out my hand against the Philistines. So now it's taking even again a next step and a further step, not only a vengeance for a current wrong, but a vengeance because of an old hatred. So the Philistines here are holding on to anger over a long period of time. And we can do that as well. We can hold on to bitterness and anger for long periods of time. It can lay dormant for a while, you know, when the person's not, not in our face anymore, the company or the situation is not right there, and we can go on happily, but then something will bring it up again. We see someone driving a car similar to that person, or we hear about the company on the news, or we actually see that person, or, or someone mentions a name and it's the same name as that person, and all of a sudden the feelings just well up all over again. 
and that old hatred stirred up there again, still there, deep-seated, and destroying us, eating us away from within, causing various different forms of depression and other things come as a result of old hatred, deep-seated hatred that we don't let go of. And the way to get rid of it is to give it over to God. Give God the hatred and choose by God's grace to forgive the person for the wrong that they did. Now, I want to clarify, and I think it's always important to clarify this because I think in our society today we have a huge misunderstanding of what forgiveness means. And a lot of times we don't want to forgive because we have a wrong concept of forgiveness. Forgiveness is not saying that what they did is okay. Forgiveness is not saying, well, we'll just forget about it and we'll go on as if nothing ever happened. But that's what we say. We even have a term, forgive and forget. And I don't think it's a good idea to forget. It's a good idea to forgive, but not to forget. Because if we forget, then we leave ourselves vulnerable to allow them to do it again to us. And so we shouldn't forget, but we should forgive and so forgiveness is not, again, saying, hey, it's okay, don't worry about it, walk all over me again. Forgiveness is not saying it doesn't matter, it's okay, it's not okay. Forgiveness is saying that what they did was wrong. Now, you don't forgive someone for doing something good to you, right? Someone brought you a gift or did a good deed to you, you don't say, oh, I forgive you. I forgive you for that gift, or I forgive you for helping me out that other day, right? You wouldn't say that. We only forgive people who did something wrong. So by saying, I forgive you, we're saying you did something wrong. But at the same time, I am not going to let your wrong cause bitterness and anger to stir up in my soul. I'm not going to want to bring vengeance on you. I'm not going to be angry at you. Again, I may sue you, I may bring you to court, I may have you arrested, I may you know, expect you to pay the damage done but I'm not going to be angry and bitter and revengeful and rejoice in that you're in prison or that you're having to pay or, or make this right or do this deed. Right? That's, that's how God forgives. He forgives, but he's not angry. But he still brings justice. And there's a balance there. Right? And I think in society we've lost that balance. We think forgive means, hey, it's just okay. Right? That it, it doesn't have to be paid anymore. We even use that term, right? The debt was forgiven. It's wiped out. You don't have to pay the company anymore. God expects a payment. Right? For the wrongs that were done, he doesn't just wipe them out. A payment had to be made. That's why the Messiah had to come and suffer and die. And that's what Yom Kippur is about. Again, the, the, the whole basis of Yom Kippur when the temple was, was standing was about the sacrifices that were brought there. In order to bring atonement, there had to be a blood sacrifice. Blood sprinkled in the Holy of Holies upon the mercy seat and in the Kodesh Kodeshim on, on the Ark of the Covenant and on the curtain to cleanse the sanctuary. Blood had to be sacrificed. A payment had to be made. And even as he's a substitute for us, and there again Aaron offering his son Isaac, God providing a sacrifice and a ram caught in his horns by, in a bush, there still had to be a death. There's still a death. There has to be a death to self. The old carnal nature has to die and we have to be made new. 
It's not just, oh, it's okay. It's never okay. Wrong is never okay. Sin is never okay. Sin brought about the death of our, our parents. That's what God said. If you sin, you will surely die. And what was the lie? What did serpent say? You'll not surely die. So who are we going to believe? God or the serpent? Right? Does forgiveness mean you won't die? And there won't be any punishment? Or forgiveness, even with forgiveness, means there will be a death. There will be an accountability. And so God has taken the accountability upon himself. But we have to experience it with him as well. A dying to the old nature and not a continuing in it anymore. And that, again, is all by God's power, all by God's grace. He brings the conviction. He gives us the gift of confession. He gives us the gift of repentance. He's already provided the atonement for us. And he'll take out the heart of stone, and he'll put in the heart of flesh and make us new and transform us and change us. And that's what he does. Because of, again, his great love for us. So he can free us from whatever old hatred you have. Anything that's still there, surrender it to God and let him take it out and remove it from you and give you love instead. Again, love doesn't mean you go and embrace a mass killer or mass rapist. But love then pities them for the guilt that they've carried and for the sins that they did with prayers and a hope that they will also repent and receive God's forgiveness and love and mercy. Right? Love doesn't have to put us back in harm's way again. Love is a feeling towards them. But still keeping ourselves safe. Love doesn't open all the prison doors and let everybody out. My judgment still has to take place. I will execute great vengeance on them with furious rebukes, and they shall know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. So vengeance is the Lord. God will avenge. God will bring vengeance. And his purpose, again, is so that they know that he is the Lord. Out of love. So that we can make him Lord of our lives. And stop trying to be Lord ourselves and determine who deserves this and deserves that and laugh at them and cut them down and bring them down to a lower level and we judge and bring vengeance and determine the wrath that they deserve, but surrendering it over to God and letting God's justice be done. It was a book by George Orwell, uh, 1984. Prophetic in its time, happening today where Big Brother is spying all the time on everything that is done in the nation and correcting and brainwashing and changing the thoughts of everyone who's not in harmony with the majority, the ruling power, and bringing all their thoughts and desires and hopes into subjection to the ruling power. And it's happening today in many different ways. In Orwell's book, it was the government. But today, I think it's bigger than the government. 
In Orwell's book, there were three main governments. Three, the world was divided into three countries. But this is bigger, I think, than any individual country. What we're seeing happening right before us. And we're voluntarily submitting to it. I'm talking about the internet and the companies that rule it and know everything about us. For example, Google, huge search engine, attracts everything that everyone looks at, every purchase they make and every site they go to and everything they watch. Also owns YouTube. By far the biggest video streaming network out there in the world. And tracks everything that everyone watches all the time. In addition to that, they don't screen the people they hire. They also own Gmail. And read all the emails that go through on Gmail. You say, well, I don't use Gmail. But if you get an email from someone who has Gmail, or you send an email to someone who has Gmail, and I don't think any of the other country, companies are any better anyway, but that's just one example, the biggest, probably one. Not only Gmail, but also Android is owned by Google. So a good portion of the phones that are out there and if you look at any of the privacy settings, it says that they have the ability to turn your camera on, videotape you anytime they want, turn the microphone on or off anytime they want, read everything on your SD card and on your phone's hard drive anytime they want, add to or delete anything they want at any time they want, and track all the phones calls and all the texts and go into your address book and search out your address book and download your entire address book so that they can market to all your friends. And we've given them permission to. And I've tried to download a different browser and there are, all of them have the same requirements. The same privacy or non-privacy privileges for using their service. And even if they're a good company, even if they're all good companies, they sell all this stuff to third com companies. And they say in their policy that we're giving them permission to sell it to some other third company for their marketing purposes. And who knows that there are any legitimate or good or how they're going to be used or who's going to hack into it or use it some government somewhere that can use it however they choose to suppress thought now Google has just revealed unwillingly through a leaked video of a conference call that they had a conference video conference that they had that they are not neutral in any way, shape, or form. They have a strong political agenda, and they said very clearly in their meeting that they are going to use 
their influence, get a major search engine, all these other things, to influence how people think and to educate people. Now, they're a private company, and so they can do that. But we don't necessarily think of them as a private company. I mean, it's like if you can imagine back in the day when we had phone books, instead of it being alphabetized, the companies were placed there in rank of however they chose. And so when you do a search and type someone's name in, or some topic in, or some issue in, they will rank it according to how they choose to rank it. So that what comes up in the first, in the first page, in the second page, or whatever, is the items that they want us to see. Firefox, another big web browser, about four years ago, fired their CEO because he made a $1,000 donation which for a CEO of a big company like Firefox and Mozilla uh, is nothing. I mean, for most of us, that'd be like donating a dollar. A thousand dollar donation six years prior to when they fired him. He made the donation six years prior to an organization that supported marriage. And at the time, that, that organization that was there supporting marriage, there was a bill that was coming uh, in California legislation uh, to define marriage at that time. And the majority of Californians agreed with the definition of marriage at that time that that $1,000 donation was going for that organization. So even though the majority of that state and, and, and of the country as a whole was in harmony with the CEO's donation, the company still fired them for that. And again, it's a private company and they can fire. But let's say his donation was the other way. Let's say it was a $1,000 donation to a group who supported homosexuality. And he was fired for that. I think that might be a criminal offense in discriminating against the minority group. So anyway, all of that, as we can see, things now, these companies and third companies and whoever wants to hack them, whoever they want to sell it to or give it to, can know just about everything about us. Back in close to the turn of the century, the, the Patriot Act was in, initiated, and I think most of us here are old enough to remember uh, the turn of the century, or 9-11, right? So after 9-11, not that long ago, most of us here were alive. A big thing that was against the Patriarch Act was that they, in, in, the, in the act, it gave the government permission to search out our library visits and what books we checked out. And that was such a, oh no, they're going to know what I read in the library. They're going to know what book I checked out of the library. Because I checked out a book on how to make bombs or something like that. And that was a big uproar. That's a, a breach of privacy that the government will know. That was about the only objection that I knew of to, to the Patriarch Act. But how much more now? And libraries are basically no more. And not only books that we check out that the library already pre-approved to put into the library, but every and any website 
any video, any email, any phone call. Now you might say, hey, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. I have nothing to hide. I have a clean conscience. I'm not visiting any sites that are wrong or anything like that. Well, I'll remind us that it wasn't that long ago, 70 or so years ago, that you could be in a free country, democratically elected officials in a country, freedom of speech and freedom of the press. And you could have been a doctor or, or a politician or a war veteran. And overnight, become illegal and a criminal because you were Jewish. And of course, I'm describing Germany. Not because of anything illegal you did, but just because the com com country decided that you were illegal. And it was around that same time that even in this country, you would be arrested for being Japanese. And it's not too far before that, where in this country, in many parts of the country, you'd be arrested if you were black and were free, weren't owned by someone. And so overnight, things can change. What is free now and what is available now can become determined illegal tomorrow. And we can be held accountable, according to today's setting, by things that we did when it was still legal. That would be like the speed limit being changed and being lowered from whatever, let's say from 70 down to 55. 55 saves lives, so we lower the speed limit. And they bring up a record from two years prior and saying, well, back in two years ago, you were going 70 miles an hour or 60 miles an hour on that road. Well, it was legal then, but it doesn't matter. It's not now. And so we're going to judge you now based on the opinion of today, not of when it was then. And that's happening all the time now in various different ways. Our society has shifted in what they think, and they're condemning people, firing people, because of past views. And so overnight, things can change. But all of that I bring out tonight, because God has the eternal judgment. And God knows more than Google and Facebook, and all of them combined. He knows our motives, and he knows our hearts. And he will have a judgment day based on all the knowledge that he has. But the nice thing is he doesn't change his laws. He's consistent. And so we can know where we stand based on what he already wrote, what he already wrote on stone. And he's consistent, and he will judge us based on that. Plus, he's given us opportunity for our hearts to come into right character with him. So if you can imagine an electric chair type setting, and they're gonna ask you some questions. Or not an electric chair, a, a um, lie detector chair. Well, that's hooked to an electric chair, right, both at the same time. So it's a lie detector and an electric chair, and if you lie, they're gonna zap you. 
And that's what they did in Orwell's book, that they zapped them until their brains were fried. But they're going to zap you if you lie. Now, there is one provision that they won't ask you any question about anything, nor will they condemn you or hold you accountable for anything that you confess before they turn on the machine. So you have an opportunity to confess anything that you know in your life, how far back, was wrong, and we won't bring that question up. And in your confession, we won't hold it against you, and it'll be purged from the record books. And that's what God does. He's giving us opportunity right now. In these 10 days of awe, the symbolism of the last days, and I believe we're in the last days, and that whole analogy I gave with, with what's going on with the internet and stuff like that, I think is, is all a part of that. He's giving us opportunity. He's warning us and warning us. And he's giving us opportunity to pre-confess our sins before him. And if we confess them ahead of time, he will not hold them against us in the judgment. They'll be wiped out. They will not come up again. They'll be blotted out of the record books and removed from us. And the only question to ask on judgment day will have to do with things that we haven't confessed. And if we've confessed all, then we have nothing to worry about. God is just in giving us an opportunity. Now. And so I want to read through together the al Khait. And mentions a number of sins, and maybe God has already brought some conviction to your mind. My glasses over there? Oh, they're over here. Whole thing's over here. Yeah, I need my glasses to find you. Okay. So, for all of these sins, the Alchit. So, if guys brought any conviction from the things we've read so far from Ezekiel 25 or from this list, now's our chance and opportunity that God gives us to confess it. Receive his forgiveness, let him take it from us, and carry it upon himself, and bury it away, and to replace it with his spirit. For the sins we have committed against you, willingly or under compulsion, and for the sins we have committed against you by hardening our hearts and stubbornness, for the sins we have committed against you by acting without thinking, for the sin we committed against you by speaking perversely. For the sin we committed against you through sexual impurity and lust. For the sin we committed against you secretly and openly. For the sin we committed against you by being deceitful. For the sin we committed against you by offensive speech. For the sin we committed against you by wronging our neighbor. For the sins we have committed against you by sinful motives. For the sin we have committed against you by lewd association. For the sin we have committed against you by insincere confession. For the sin we have committed against you by spurning and disrespecting our parents and teachers and leaders. 
for the sin we have committed against you in presumption or in error. For the sin we have committed against you by committing violence. For the sin we have committed against you by profaning your name or using your name in vain. For the sin we have committed against you by unclean speech. For the sin we have committed against you by foolish talk. For the sin we have committed against you through evil desires. And for the sin we have committed against you knowingly and unknowingly. And together, if you want to give these over to the Lord, for all of these sins, O God of forgiveness, forgive us and pardon us in Yeshua's name. For the sin we have committed against you by denying and lying. For the sin we have committed against you by bribery. For the sin we have committed against you by doubt. For the sin we have committed against you by slander. For the sin we have committed against you in our business dealings. For the sin that we have committed against you in what we have eaten or drank. For the sin we have committed against you by being demanding. For the sin we have committed against you by arrogance and pride. For the sin we have committed against you by speaking gossip. For the sin we have committed against you by being manipulative and controlling. For the sin we have committed against you by a lack of faith. For the sin we have committed against you by pride. For all of these sins, O God of forgiveness, forgive us and pardon us in Yeshua's name. For the sin we have committed against you by rejecting responsibility. For the sin we have committed against you by anger. For the sin we have committed against you by unforgiveness. For the sin we have committed against you by envy and jealousy. For the sin we have committed against you by levity. For the sin we have committed against you by being stiff-necked. For the sin we have committed against you by covetousness. For the sin we have committed against you by gluttony. For the sin we have committed against you by breaking our promises. For the sin we have committed against you by hatred. For the sin we have committed against you by a breach of trust. For the sin we have committed against you with negativity. For all of these sins, O God of forgiveness, forgive us and pardon us in Yeshua's name. We have trespassed, we have dealt deceitfully, we have stolen, we have slandered. We have acted perversely, we have done wrong. We have acted presumptuously, and we have been violent. We have spoken lies, we have counseled evil, we have spoken falsely, we have blasphemed. We have scoffed, we have rebelled, we have provoked, and we have oppressed. We have been stiff-necked, we have corrupted, we have gone astray, and we have led others astray. But if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen is right. Amen. And so if we will now pray together. 
And again, accept God's forgiveness and release for any of the sins we've just confessed or anything else that he's bringing to your mind, any specific thing throughout this year or throughout your life. You want to surrender and give over and confess so it's off the record book. Our Lord and our God, King of the universe, God of mercy and of love and long-suffering, thank you for your grace. Thank you for bringing us to this time. Thank you for reminding us of the judgment. Thank you for reminding us of our sins. Thank you for pre-cleansing us. Thank you for washing them away. Thank you for removing them from us. Thank you for the gift of guilt. Thank you for the gift of confession. Thank you for the gift of repentance. Thank you for the gift of lifting the guilt and removing it from us. Thank you, Yeshua, for taking it upon yourself and dying for it and paying the penalty for it. Thank you for your Holy Spirit to fill us and to live in us and transform us and change us and keep us from falling into it again. In Yeshua's holy name, amen. <laughs>